Hey, welcome back to Formate Arbitration. And today I'm finally going to do the closing argument for the management falsifying editing clock rings. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Cole Billups, because if it wasn't for Cole Billups, I wouldn't be doing this episode. Uh, I could not figure out how to move my closing argument off my phone onto my laptop. Like I said, labor, they will record the closings. They do training and stuff off of them. And so they'll send me a copy of it. Well, it was too large for me to send to my laptop. So I had to call Cole. Cole had to spend all of his afternoon trying to help me figure this out. So <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Cole Billups. <laughs> so I appreciate him. He's always more than helpful to me. Uh, Going to be a great, great union leader one day. I'm sure of it. That guy's very intelligent. And um, so I, I thank him very much for helping me. Um, but this case, it was back in 2020, and it was management in the national installation. I've been caught several times editing and falsifying clock rings. And this is one of about three cases that we took to arbitration. Uh, luckily, we had a very good arbitrator that understood uh, remedies, understood escalated monetary awards. And uh, so we were in, in good shape as far as that. A very good case file. JB did a fantastic job on it, as always. Uh, we had a removal Friday. We had a removal. And um, it's a difficult case. Uh, arbitration is always 50-50, like I always tell everybody. It's always 50-50. But JB always enhances my chances of winning because <laughs> he's that good. And he did probably the best he's ever done Friday. He was magnificent. And also, Mr. Jason Crosby, who is the informal step A, testified. He's very good in arbitration as well. And so... I've been kind of out of pocket this last week, so if you've reached out to me and I haven't got back to you yet, I will. But arbitration week, I usually shut things down, and uh, this one was no different. And so very difficult removal, but hopefully we will be on the, the winning side of it. We'll see. Management's going to do a brief, so it'll be two more months before we find out, unfortunately. But anyway, this case... It was taken arbitration back in 2020. And I'll tell you that my closing is very long, and most of you might think it's very boring. Uh, because what I always do in contract cases, since I go first, is I will make sure the arbitrator is going to take this case file home and he's going to read the entire case file. That's probably the first time he'll get into the B team decision. Most time in arbitrations, the B team decision doesn't even get acknowledged. Um, and I won't let management testify to the B-team decision because they had nothing to do with it. Um, but in this installation, especially this, this uh, district, uh, our B-team member for management is the most dishonest I've ever seen. Uh, she's the most unethical person as far as her B-team decisions. There's nothing she won't do to try to win. Uh, she falsifies things. She lies. She's completely dishonest, and uh, I've never seen anything like it. And so it's a challenge when you go into arbitration because you have to make sure that the arbitrator is aware of the dishonesty and the level of dishonesty. Uh, this this B team member for management will put anything and everything in the file. If uh, the formal step A for management sends up one page, she's going to make 30. 
And so she can't, they constantly sandbag their position until the B team. And she'll make outlandish arguments, completely made up. Uh, she'll make up anything and put it into her intentions. You know, it's a win at all cost. Um, so you just have to make sure that you make the arbitrator aware of it. And I do that. And you'll see that I go after the B team. I start out by going after labor. Uh, the advocate, her opening statement, she was dishonest. Uh, the B team, incredibly dishonest. I go after management's formal step A, who's ignoramus. Uh, I talk a little bit about JB's contentions. And so I'm going to read this decision. I'm going to read all of it. Normally, I'll read the arbitrator's award, but this is 24 pages. So it's going to be quite some, a lot of reading, unfortunately, quite a lot of reading. But it's going to set this closing up for you. Uh, and hopefully it won't be so boring after I read this because you'll see the points that I make to the arbitrator, the points that management attempts to make to the arbitrator. And then you'll hear his decision and uh, you'll see exactly what he held on to. But again, you know, it's, it's difficult in this installation because the B team for management is so dishonest. Um, incredibly so. And in this case, she just made up why management was falsifying clock range. Just made it up. And so you're like, what the hell are you doing? But it's nothing new for this B team member. Just the most dishonest human being I've ever met. And so you'll, you'll hear that kind of in my voice when I'm doing my closing argument, all right? Um, so here's the decision. It's 34731, 34731, and it's arbitrator Lawrence Roberts, okay? And uh, it says, this matter involves management's alleged falsification of clock rings. The evidence in this case proved the initial allegations made by the union were true. However, the employer insisted the union's requested remedy was improper. The grievance is sustained to the extent set forth in the discussion and findings below. Okay? And so uh, has the submission, has the background and facts. It says uh, this is a class action grievance filed on behalf of letter carriers working at the national installation, the Green Hill Station. This particular matter focuses on a postal service document known as an employee everything report. Specifically to this instant grievance, this report provides a detailed time analysis via clock rings of the various job functions performed by the letter carrier throughout their respective tour of duty. The issue in this case involves the alleged falsification of those clock rings by management. The record shows this alleged alteration did not result in any direct financial harm to any of the letter carriers. The actual times of the respective tours of duties were not altered. All hours worked by the letter carriers were compensated appropriately. Instead, the allegation involves management's alleged alteration of the time spent by letter carriers while performing the specific job functions associated with the letter carrier classification. The union contends the employer clearly violated the party's agreement and the requested remedy cited below should be granted. Management insists the letter carriers suffered no financial harm and any compensation beyond that status quo ante would be punitive in nature and should be denied. And you will always hear that phrase, status quo ante, status quo ante. Matter of fact, unfortunately, when you look at social media, a lot of our own people talk about, well, you can't ask for anything above the status quo ante. So again, they're buying into management's position. 
when management says status quo ante, the union, a lot of union people will say that. Well, you can't ask for anything above that. Bullshit. You ask for whatever you want to, and you prove why you should get it. The parties were unable to resolve the dispute resulting in an impasse declared, being declared by the Step B team on the 21st of November 2019. It was found the matter was properly processed through the prior steps of the grievance procedure. Therefore, the dispute is now before the undersigned for final determination. At the hearing, the parties were afforded a fair and full opportunity to present evidence, examine and cross-examine witnesses. While the union advocate opted to summarize their position at the end of the live hearing, the record was officially closed following the arbitrator's receipt of a written closing brief by the employer on 25th of April. Remember me telling y'all that they, they opted out. They stopped doing oral closings with me. Uh, I would do oral closings, they would do, do oral closings, and they would just read theirs. It's, they're terrible. And so they just stopped doing that. And they said, well, we're going to just do, we're going to brief everything. We're no longer going to do oral closings against Corey. So they brief everything. Well, I'm not doing that. Now, I'll always do my oral closing, and then I'll ask for permission from the arbitrator to do a reply brief in accordance with Article 15. And that's what happened here. Union's position. Initially, the union represents a previous decision from this arbitrator as it relates to the issue of falsification of clock rings. It is the contention of the union that Green Hill Station is the third station in the national installation that has been caught falsifying clock rings since the award referenced above was issued. The union also claims the evidence will show that the local shop steward requested very specific information in the form of employee EIN numbers and pinpoint exactly which supervisors and managers were falsifying clock rings, and that information was never provided. According to the union, the evidence will show that over a period of few months, management was caught falsifying over 500 hours of city care clock rings. The union also insists the employer's Step B team have attempted to make a plethora of dishonest and blatantly false new arguments as according to the union, is the habitual method of procedure here in the national installation for management's formal step A. <laughs> so if you're going to be dishonest, I'm going to call you out on it, period. There's nothing worse in the, in the grievance procedure than dishonesty, and I said that in my second episode. Always be honest. Be honest with me. I'm going to be honest with them. I expect them to be honest with me, and they cannot do it. They cannot. It is against them, to be honest. And that's what I stated here. And I told the arbitrator flat out when he says the union also insists the employer's Step B team have attempted to make a plethora of dishonest and blatantly false new arguments, as according to the union, is the habitual method of procedure here in the national installation for management's formal Step A. Uh, and that's why I always say if you catch them falsifying, make it go to arbitration if they don't say that they falsified something. And that way you can tarnish their reputation when it goes forward in uh, later cases. It is the union's perspective that at formal step A, management makes very few arguments and sandbags their position until the B team. In the union's opinion, management has a horrendous record of noncompliance with grievance settlements in the national installation as it pertains to Article 17 and 31. The union claims one of the disputes in this case centers on the remedy for repeated and willful violations of the same contract provisions after prior grievances have been settled instructing management to comply with that provision. 
The union believes it has been established and repeatedly confirmed that arbitrators have both the right and the responsibility to bring their expertise and judgment to formulate remedies. The union references Articles 15.3a in support of their argument, and in that light, the union expects that management will exercise good faith and comply with the negotiated contractual provisions. The union also relies on the, on the contents of the 2002 Patrick Donahoe letter labeled M1517 in support of their position. Pointing to that document, the union believes the positions of the Postal Service and the NELC are therefore in perfect agreement. Both parties expect good faith observance of the negotiated provisions of the contract and compliance with grievance settlements. The union believes that when a contract violation occurs for the first time, a remedy to make that affected parties hold is always appropriate. However, the union contends when management receives multiple instructions compelling them to comply with the same provisions and the violations persist, then it ceases to simply be a make-whole violation. It is the view of the union that repetitive violations reveal management's disregard for its good faith observance requirements in Articles 15.3a. In the opinion of the union, their requested remedy is not unjust enrichment or punitive. Rather, it is fully supported by the evidence of this record. As argued by the union, management has repeatedly failed to abide by the same contractual provisions which are the subject of this grievance. The union mentions this record contains multiple Step B decisions, settlements, and management instructions to abide by the same contract provisions that are part of the issue in this case and repeated failures to abide by the same despite agreement for compliance. The union presents the latest example as one of the subjects of this grievance. As argued by the union, given the egregious repeated violations of cease and desist orders for the national area and instructional resolutions documented in this record, as well as the egregious nature of the instant violation, it must be found that a further monetary remedy in this instant is not punitive. In the union's opinion, their request for an increased remedy simply seeks to return the parties to an atmosphere where the agreements they signed are honored. As predicted by the union, the evidence in this case will overwhelmingly show that management has failed again to comply with the grievance settlement, that being numerous B-team and formal Step A decisions. The union queries as to when will enough be enough here in the national installation of management turning their noses up at their directives comply with these decisions. And the union wonders, what will it take to get someone's attention to force management into compliance? As indicated by the union, the decisions by DRT teams, pre-arbitration settlements, negotiators, and arbitrators are meant to be read, studied, understood, and complied with. Yet in the opinion of the union, national management has once again acted as though these decisions have never been rendered. For all these reasons, the union requests the following requested remedy be granted. Management at the Green Hill Station shall cease and desist violating Article 19 of the National Agreement and the practice of falsely editing carry clock rings and utilizing inaccurate time codes. Management be issued an additional cease and desist order for violating Article 15 of the National Agreement and Postal Service Policy Letter Step 4 M1517 for failing to comply with grievance resolution settlements in the national installation. That for EIN number failed to comply with a cease and desist order and egregious altering of clock rings for over a period of months, the union requests to act as a deterrent that each letter carrier and CCA in the Green Hills station be given a one-time lump sum payment 
of $500 to ensure contract compliance. That for EIN such and such, failure to comply with a cease and desist order and egregious altering of clock rings for over a period of months, the union requests to act as a deterrent that each letter carrier and CCA in the Greed Hills installation be given a one-time lump sum payment of $500 to ensure future compliance. Now, that's the next four because we were taking the EIN numbers of those who are falsifying or editing them, and we were saying with each EIN number of management, we want $500 per carrier. So we're trying to sock it to them. Furthermore, to act as a deterrent in efforts to ensure contract compliance management compensate branch for via money order, a one-time lump sum $500 payment for the resources utilized for the continual filing of grievances over the same settled dispute in arbitration and pre-arbitration settlements for management continually violating Articles 15 and 19 of the National Agreement and Postal Service Policy Letter M1517. All data collected or are maintained related to any letter carrier's clock rings during the period cited in this grievance shall be null and void for data record keeping and shall not be relied upon in any future valuations. Management be issued a cease and desist from failing to provide information in a timely manner and compensate branch for via money order one-time lump sum equal $500 for the resources utilized for the continued filing of grievances over the same settled disputes for management continually violating Article 17 and 31 of the National Agreement and Postal Service Policy Letter M1517. That for management's fair to comply with the cease and desist order when failing to provide information, the union requests to act as a deterrent that each letter carrier and CCA in the Green Hills Station be awarded $20 a calendar day until management complies with the information request or date of decision to ensure contract compliance. And then it would uh, the next one is that they uh, do it within a certain period of time. And so that's, uh, that's a hell of a remedy we requested, right? A lot of money. And so you'll see people on social media saying, hey, when you request so much money, don't do that because it takes it out of, you know, it makes it impossible for the B team to resolve it. That's stupid. That's bullshit, lazy ass position. Because at the end of it, just like here, whatever step B team or arbitrator deems appropriate covers that. If they don't feel like it's appropriate, then they can adjust that remedy that you're requesting. Just like with this hip stuff, when I said to ask for $50 a calendar day or whatever, they're like, don't do that. That's, you know, you're asking for so much, it makes it impossible for the B team to resolve it. That's stupid and lazy. You ask for what you think you can prove or think you can get, and then you write on there whatever step B team arbitrator deems appropriate, and that covers that, okay? Company's position. Management insists the issue in this case is solely whether or not the union is entitled to their punitive remedy request sought in their Step B decision. The employer notes the framing of the issues and offers their version of the facts of this case as described by them as a timeline of sorts. It is the claim of the agency the union elevated this matter to arbitration citing fair to comply with a previous decision labeled, and that's the, the number there, which was issued specifically at another location. The service argues this is the case does not involve the Woodbine Station. And remember that when you hear my closing, because I, I make fun of that. I'll read that again. It is the claim of the agency the union elevated this matter to arbitration, citing failure to comply with a previous decision labeled there, which was issued specifically at another location. The service argues this instant case does not involve the Woodbine Station. Remember, this is Green Hills. 
Management takes the position that no employee in Green Hill Station was harmed or injured. And that's where I start out my closing. I attack that right there. The employer predicts the union will simply be unable to prove an intentional, malicious, or willful misconduct. Therefore, it is the mindset of the employer that the union's requested remedy for each letter carrier in the Green Hill Station to receive a lump sum payment of $2,000 to act as a deterrent simply cannot be understood to be anything other than a punitive remedy for employees who are gainfully employed. The employer asserts there is no evidence in the case of any intentional falsifying or manipulating. Management suggests that if a failure to comply with previous grievance settlements arbitrations caused a loss of wages or benefits, then compensation may be warranted. However, according to the employer, absent evidence in this case file causing an actual monetary loss or wages or benefits, then compensation may be warranted, as suggested by the agency. Absent evidence in the case file causing an actual monetary loss to the grievance, an instructional remedy would be more suitable. So they're saying, hey, look, another cease and desist. Another cease and desist is all that's warranted. It is the position of the employer that for a punitive award to even be considered in this instant case, there must be proof of malice and willful misconduct on management's part or any harm to the members of this class action. The service believes that granting such an award would be altering, amending, and modifying the national agreement. It is the claim of the agency the union believes this arbitrator will continue to grant punitive remedies. Management believes the union shoulders the burden of proof in this instant case. The service contends there is no evidence in the file to support the remedy they are seeking. The service points to the union's formulate contentions, alleging that management intentionally utilized improper time coding for letter carriers, employees, and city carrier assistants to falsify times. However, according to the, the service, these allegations are not substantiated. The employer notes the issue statements identified on the PS Form 8190 as presented in informal Step A, as well as advanced to the subsequent steps, failed to even identify the time period the union alleges the violation to have occurred. Remember that, too. The employer notes the issue statements identified on the PS Form 8190 as presented in informal Step A, as well as advanced to the subsequent steps, failed to even identify the time period the union alleges the violation to have occurred. And as the agency adds, there are no specific dates or pay periods, just a windfall allegation to inflate the remedy sought at this hearing. The service argues there is no evidence in the case file indicating that an employee failed to be compensated for time work. Management mentions, the union describes the instant grievance as an ongoing violation. However, the problem with that argument is that the union seeks to convince this arbitrator that clock rings from January of 2019 could possibly be considered as a non-compliance or a pre-arb that wasn't even signed until June 18th. It is the argument of the employer that is would be impossible to comply with an agreement that didn't even exist until almost six months later. Furthermore, in the agency's opinion, it is well known that even in an ongoing violation, the remedy being requested can only be considered for 14 days prior to the filing of the grievance. As implied by the service, this is further evidence of the union's attempt to escalate this punitive remedy they are seeking in this case. The employer insists that many of the grievance settlements the union included in the case file are informal and formal A settlements which are not precedent-setting, as stated in the Joint Contract Administration Manual. 
Management goes on to cite the pertinent language in the Joint Contract Administration Manual, specifically as it relates to Article 15. It is the union's opinion of the agency the union is attempting to use prior settlements as evidence of a pattern of willful disregard of the contract, which the contract specifically precludes unless the parties have specifically so agreed. In the view of management, many of these settlements have been in other case files that have been adjudicated at arbitration. That calls to the employer to ask how many times is management on the hook for these same settlements. The agency references a national award authored by arbitrator Richard Menthol as it relates to remedy. In that regard, the employer notes that generally in a breach of contract action, the injured party is entitled to compensatory remedy that replaces what is lost, nothing more. And in this specific case, the agency argues that nothing was lost. And unfortunately, a lot of the union people have adopted that. Uh, and and we're, we're not educating our people properly uh, when that happens. They're talking about the status quo ante award uh, from National Arbitrator Richard Mintenthal. And uh, unfortunately, when you talk to certain people on social media, they'll say that. Uh, the injured party is entitled to compensation compensatory remedy that replaces what is lost. Uh, they don't take into account harm. And, uh, and that's what we always have to account for is the harm, either the unit or to the carrier or whatever, we have to show harm. And a lot of people in the union don't understand that. And that's the reason we lose so many cases in arbitration is because we don't educate our people properly. According to the employer, the union has argued the impact of the alleged falsification of clock rings in relation to Article 41, stating carriers have been deliberately placed in time codes to misrepresent the amount of time they are performing their duties in an effort to manipulate the evaluation of future route adjustments. The employer advocate is eager to learn today just how the union intends to prove that allegation in that management has already sought to remove that request from the remedy sought in arbitration. In an effort to resolve this grievance and move forward past these issues, management asserts that they have agreed that all data cited in this grievance here today will not be included for data record keeping nor relied upon in any future route evaluations. Management notes they do not dispute that weekly service safety talks are to be included in line 21 of the form 1838C during a route inspection. However, anything over and above the time credit allotted for such during this inspection would not be built into the route, resulting in a clock ring move to training time being appropriate. Uh, I'm going to read that again because this is the, one of the things where they lied on us. This is one of the things where the B team intentionally lied and management's advocate adopted that lie and brought it to arbitration. I'll read that again. Management notes they do not dispute that weekly service safety talks are to be included in line 21 of the Form 1838C during a route inspection. However, anything over and above the time credit allotted for such during the inspection would not be built into the route, resulting in a clock ring move to training time being appropriate. And so their argument was all of these editing of clock rings for, was for training. A complete lie. And they knew it was a lie. Uh, but they're dishonest like that. Like I said, the B team for Tennessee is the most dishonest human being you'll ever meet. And so uh, that's what happens. Me management references a prior decision of this arbitrator as it relates to Article 15.4A6. The employer insists the cash payments to the union is seeking are unwarranted, contrary to established law, and beyond the authority of the arbitrator. 
The agency believes the remedy the union seeks is plainly punitive in nature, and the well-established general rule of law is that punitive or exemplary damages are not available as a remedy for a contract breach. And remember, this one was before Kingsport, where we had that uh, federal court decision that says, yes, you can sue the Postal Service. They're not protected by sovereign immunity, right? And so they're saying that the law doesn't allow for this when, in fact, it does. We had the federal court decision that came down after this saying, yes, we can sue the Postal Service for breaches of the contract. In the employer's opinion, this is true even where a breach is egregious or aggravated. Contractual damages are intended to make a party whole, not to punish or defend. Uh, from the agency's viewpoint, it is the principle recognized and restated by a number of national postal arbitrators. It is also the belief of the employee the law is also clear that because punitive damages are extraordinary remedies not generally available in contract action, the right to such a remedy would not be inferred from general contract language. There must be specific language in the contract authorizing punitive damages. Management argues the only language in the party's agreement relative to punitive awards is found in Article 41, Regarding opting, however, in this case, the union is seeking to gain through arbitration what they failed to acquire in negotiations. The employer goes on to point out the Joint Contract Administration Manual, Article 41, as it relates to their position regarding a punitive remedy. According to management, the union has stated they cannot stress enough that there is no request for punitive damage at issue here. There is simply a request for incentive for compliance with Article 15.3a and policy violations resulting from management's refusal to comply with prior instructional resolution. The agency believes the union concedes via carefully crafted linguistics that the remedy it is seeking is punitive in nature and intended to punish the Postal Service for what it claims are repeated violations of cease and desist orders. In the employer's opinion, the union additionally claims that the remedy it seeks is to reimburse the union for costs it was forced to incur to ensure compliance with the contract. Again, in their view, the Postal Service has already paid the union for steward time spent on adjusting grievances and presenting this case at informal step A, formal step A, and step B as provided under the contract. Therefore, according to the employer, any additional compensation for those activities would amount to a punitive windfall for the union. Management reiterates that payment to the union of costs and expenses not agreed to by the parties under the contract exceeds the authority of the arbitrator and amounts to a punitive sanction. The employer asserts that punitive remedies are particularly disfavored in the context of labor arbitrations and are rarely permissible under the Labor Management Relations Act. Furthermore, the agency contends an award of punitive damages against the Postal Service is barred by principles of sovereign immunity. Remember that? That's what they claimed in front of that federal court judge, and she shot that down. Management insists that both federal courts and Postal Service arbitrators at the national level have held that punitive remedies are not available for breaches of labor agreements. It is the employer's perspective that the vast weights of authority holds that punitive awards and labor arbitrations are improper, generally, and detrimental to harmonious labor relations, and district courts have not been reluctant to vacate such awards. 
The context of the agency also includes the NALC contract does not provide awards for punitive damages, and because such awards are improper in labor arbitrations and impermissible against the Postal Service, the award of such damages directly to the union raises the serious concern under Section 302 of the Labor Management Relations Act, which establishes the general rule prohibiting payments to unions by employers and prohibiting requests for such payments by unions. And as suggested by the service, even if the union could overcome all the hurdles outlined herein, the conduct of the Postal Service in this case amounts to nothing more than repeated breaches of a contract for which there is already a contractually specified remedy. According to the employer's version of events, the supervisors who allegedly failed to comply with the contract in this case were doing their best with the resources available to them to fulfill the statutory obligation of the Postal Service to deliver the mail. In the opinion of the service, there simply is not the extreme, outrageous, and wanton and willful misconduct necessary to support an award of punitive damages. Management also interjects that, particularly at a time when the Postal Service faces extraordinary financial pressures, windfall cash awards to the union inflict significant damage to Postal Service operations and undermine public interest. The agency is the opinion that no employee in Green Hill Station was harmed or injured. The employer predicts the union simply will not be able to prove any intentional, malicious, or willful misconduct. Therefore, according to the service's argument, the union's requested remedy for each letter carrier in the Green Hill Station to receive a lump sum payment of $2,000 to act as a deterrent simply cannot be understood to be anything other than a punitive remedy for employees who are gainfully employed. The employer suggests that if a failure to comply with previous grievance settlements arbitrations caused a loss of wages or benefits, then compensation may be warranted. Absent evidence in this case file causing an actual monetary loss to the grievant, the employer believes that an instructional remedy would be more suitable. Management notes that a pre-arbitration settlement has been fulfilled. As of today, according to the employer, there are no current grievances that management has been made aware of for the same allegation in the national installation. As mentioned earlier by the agency, there must be proof of malice and willful misconduct on management's part or any harm to the members of this class action, and to grant such a punitive award would be altering, amending, and modifying the national agreement. The agency requests the instant grievance be denied in its entirety. Okay? And so here's the union's, I mean, here's uh, the arbitrator's discussion and findings. In preface, I would first like to provide insight into the employer advocates missive in their opening statement with the same subject again resuscitated via management's closing brief. My sensitivity regarding compensatory awards has been well documented in many of my past decisions. To that end, I would like to summarize my considered opinion on this very subject by first citing a previous award of mine dated February 18th of 2020. The agency insisted that escalating remedies and punitive awards violate the party's agreement. Several precedent-setting awards to that end were introduced. However, none were specifically on point to the specific issue. In a 1989 national award, arbitrator Richard Mintenthal stated, the purpose of a remedy is to place employees and management in the position they would have been in had there been no contract violation. The remedy serves to restore the status quo ante. And that's the Mittenthal decision I constantly talk about, the status quo ante. 
1994, arbitrator Menthol provided a similar message in another national award styled, there's the number, it is generally accepted in labor arbitration that a damage award arising from a violation of the collective bargaining agreement should be limited to the amount necessary to make the injured employees whole. Those deprived of a contractual benefit are made whole for their loss. They receive compensatory damages to the extent required, no more and no less. I agree with arbitrator Mittenthal that a remedy serves to restore the status quo ante. In the second award, arbitrator Mittenthal stopped short of making that status quo ante mandatory by the use of the wording such as generally accepted and should be limited. Such mandatory dialogue indicates the intent of arbitrator Menthol was not to eliminate the use of punitive awards in certain situations. However, in my considered opinion, this is certainly not one of those cases. The fact of the matter is, the union was unable to show that a delay in the agreed-upon training proved harmful to any member of the bargaining unit. In many of my prior decisions regarding noncompliance, I have made corrective monetary awards when it was shown the noncompliance violation was not only repetitive in nature, but also harmed one or more members of the bargaining unit. To that end, and under the such national-level guidelines, corrective monetary remedies to bargaining unit members, as well as the local union, are certainly appropriate, albeit under very specific conditions. Those circumstances are identified by several examples, including delayed payments of previous grievance arbitration settlements or clear defiance of cease and desist orders. And when a matter meets certain criteria, corrective remedies are appropriate. Such awards, not only for me, but many other postal arbitrators have survived national negotiations without restrictions from the chief negotiators via the addition of any contractual language through several bargaining sessions. Regarding this instant case, the union relied on two previous decisions I authored the national installation, both including cease and desist orders. However, both orders were issued to the specific stations, Woodbine and West Station. And with that in mind, the cease and desist orders issued in both those decisions are not applicable to this instant case. The issue statements also include, in those two cases, include cease and desist orders. Those settlements become more applicable. The pre-arbitration settlement in those cases is 13th, June 2019, and the origin of the instant case is 27th of August of 2019. Management should have been well aware of the cease and desist orders that existed in those two previous cases. It seems this falsification occurred concurrently at various stations across the national installation. Similar remedies should have been applied in this instant case. Whatever arguments, objections, or contentions the employer brings forth could easily offset via mere contractual compliance. Cease and desist means stop. One order should certainly be sufficient. The union need not accumulate a canasta deck in order to take hold. And in that same vein, I understand there are sometimes administrative challenges to timely payments being made. That can also be resolved by management alone. There is simply no excuse for noncompliance or delayed grievance payments. The employer, in their opening statement, admitted to the repeated breaches of the party's agreement, yet argues the Postal Service faces extraordinary financial pressures. It goes without saying that the elimination of repeated breaches would certainly alleviate some of those self-imposed financial pressures. 
The employer also argued that many of the grievance settlements the union included in the file are informal and formal settlements, which are not precedent-setting, as stated in the JCAM. The Joint Contract Administration Manual notes the following language. Formal Step A Decision the parties must make a formal Step A decision and complete the joint Step A grievance form on the date of the meeting unless they agree to extend the time limit. Copies of the completed form must be sent to the steward and supervisor who failed to resolve the disputed informal Step A. Resolutions and withdrawals at formal Step A do not establish precedent unless the parties specifically agree otherwise. If the grievance is resolved, copies of the resolution must be sent to the steward and supervisor who discussed the grievance in informal step A. Specifically, the above language states that resolutions and withdrawals at formal step A do not establish a precedent unless the parties specifically agree otherwise. That statement speaks for itself. In my considered opinion, if the parties agree that a cease and desist order is included in a formal settlement, the intent of the parties was clearly to specifically establish a precedent. There'd be no other reason to include a cease and desist order in any settlement. If the express intent of the parties was not to establish and set precedent, the same would hold true for the Step B decision. In this case, there is absolutely no doubt the employer violated the parties' agreement via the falsification of clock rings. In fact, at the hearing, management acknowledged that clock rings were changed. However, the employer advocate asserted that harm did not occur to any of the letter carriers and all the clock rings that appear will not be counted towards any route adjustments. There is no doubt management violated the party's agreement via the alteration of clock rings for more than some 500 hours. Such action is the third. The union steward acknowledged the record is devoid of personal statements from the affected letter carriers. And normally it would be the union's responsibility to verify claims or allegations via some form of evidence. However, in this case, the employer advocate satisfied the union's requirement in that regard by certifying that a violation did occur. The clock rings were inappropriately altered. So, in that respect, the union's burden was easily satisfied. It was obvious that none of the letter carriers impacted by this falsification suffered any financial harm. However, Gone undetected, this falsification would have produced improper route adjustments as a result of these time misalignments at the Screen Hill Station. And had that occurred, the direct impact on individual letter carriers would have certainly produced chaos. So in that light, while not financial, each letter carrier would have been adversely affected via the terms and conditions of employment, albeit a direct violation of Article 5. This act wasn't an accident or mistake. Instead, willful and wanton management conduct. While management admits to the violation, such acknowledgement certainly does not negate its impact on all the letter carriers working at the Green Hill Station. In my considered opinion, falsification is clearly a form of theft. In this case, that theft was willful. And when one enters such an arena, mere admission fails to simply erase the act as though it never occurred. If this were a removal, action involving theft by a member of the bargaining unit, management would certainly demand the separation be upheld. The union also insisted that certain requests for information were denied. In this particular case, I was not convinced the union met the burden of proof in that regard. However, Article 15 demands full disclosure. The failure of either party to disclose all facts regarding any case certainly hampers the ability of the same to present a formidable defense irrespective of any information request. The end result in this case would have been the same.
The grievance is sustained. However, the union's requested remedy will be modified by the following. National installation management shall immediately cease and assist from falsifying, manipulating, and intentionally using inaccurate time codes when inputting timekeeping clock ring entries in the tax system. Now, he changed that because, remember, we put Woodbine and West Station previously, and management said, hey, you didn't tell them, you didn't tell Green Hills not to falsify. You just told uh, Woodbine and West not to falsify. And so I addressed that in my closing as well. So he says, national installation management shall immediately cease and assist. Number two, management shall conduct time and attendance policies in accordance with all applicable handbooks and manuals to include Article 19 of the National Agreement, the Employer Labor Relations Manual, and the F-21 and attendance handbook. Number three, compensate branch four via money order, a one-time lump sum, $500. All data collected and or maintained related to any letter carriers clock rings during the period of cited in this agreement shall be null and void for data record keeping and shall not be relied upon in any future evaluations. Five, each letter carrier, city carrier, assistant, and the Green Hill Station whose clock rings were inappropriately altered shall be awarded a single lump sum of $100. Six, all payments associated with this case shall be processed as soon as administratively possible but no later than 60 days from receiving this decision and proof received be provided to the formal A representative. It is so ordered. This is not a punitive award. Instead, it is an award that hopefully will encourage management to refrain from future similar violations. I shall retain jurisdiction over this case for 90 days from the date of this decision. And so there you have the award. You have my position, the union's position first. You have management's coming in there, spend a lot of time talking about compensatory, escalated monetary awards, how it's not, uh, the, the contract does not allow for it, law doesn't allow for it, and the arbitrator said it does. And so uh, I'm going to play the closing for you now. Like I said, some may think it's very boring. Some may think it's interesting. But I start out getting on labor. Uh, go uh, address their opening statement because they hand that in. Uh, I address the B team, who is incredibly dishonest. Uh, address management's formal step A, some of JB's contentions, and ended up as a very long closing. So hopefully you don't fall asleep. But here's the closing argument on the editing of clock rings, and I'll come back on the other side and finish this out, okay? Um, and this is probably one of the more, I guess you could say, disturbing positions that management takes against a letter carrier where management has falsified clock rings. In her statement, she sent her opening statement, she says, management takes the position that no employee in Green Hill Station was harmed or injured. To me, that's as disturbing a statement as you'll hear from anybody, that you can do what you do to me, you can falsify clock rings and say, hey, we're immune from anything because no carrier was harmed. That's absurd. Absolutely carriers are harmed. The unit's harmed. When management falsifies 509 hours of clock rings, the unit is harmed. I've got a carrier in there doing his job, clocking on, going to his route, working. And you've got somebody behind a desk doing nothing but deleting time from them. It's an absurd statement you'll hear that no carriers were harmed. So, hey, 
hands up. We should be immune from anything. That's preposterous. Um, and as a carrier, I've carried, I've carried for 26 years now. To say that about me, you know what I'm saying? That's ridiculous. To say that about my brothers and sisters that are in their work and doing their job, that they're not harmed, that's a slap in our face when management says that. Absolutely. She goes on to state, absent evidence in this case file causing any actual monetary loss to the grievance, an instructional remedy would be more than suitable. So, hey, being as there was no monetary loss to the carrier, only a cease and desist would be sufficient. Again, that's how they feel about us. That's how they feel about us. We're working. We're doing our job. And you're going to sit there and try to hide time for whatever reason and say, hey, no monetary loss was done by that. Well, we can't trust you now. We can't trust you because we're in here doing our job and you're stealing time from us. How about that? How about that harm? The harm between us and them because of what they did. They're not important. They don't care about that. There's that harm. <clears throat> she goes on to state, Mr. Arbitrator, this isn't the first time you've adjudicated Tennessee District and ALC cases. In the majority of the cases brought before you, the union has relied heavily upon their assumption you will continue to grant punitive awards such as the recently given in Kingsport, Tennessee and being sought here today. <clears throat> I've said this in every non-compliance case <clears throat> and I'll say this until the end of time. Comply. Stop doing it. If you get a cease and desist, I have never seen a grievance where the first time something's happened the union has asked for a monetary award. You get a cease and desist, that means stop and don't do it anymore. You know what you need to do when you get that? Stop. And don't do it anymore. But when you get a case file full of B-team decisions that have told you to stop and don't do it anymore, at what point, at what point do we need an escalated remedy to make them stop? In their opinion, they should just have an eternal amount of cease and desist. That's their position. We should just be given a constant amount of cease and desist. <clears throat> How absurd is that? Really? That's their position. It's on paper. If you stop like you've been told to stop by both parties, you know how much we're going to ask for? Nothing. Nothing. Not a penny. I have stated that in every non-compliance case I've ever done. You don't want to deal with a monetary, an escalated monetary award? Do your job. Do what you're told to do. And I swear, on my name, we will never ask for an escalated remedy. They don't get that. They don't grasp that. I don't understand why. Maybe they're not reading their decisions. I have no idea. But you've been told to stop and don't do it anymore. And here we are, all these grievances later, and while they're saying, you can't, you can't tell us we're going to pay anything. We're not going to pay monetary. We're just to just a remedy of cease and desist will be fine. Well, hell, we already tried that. Time and time and time again, we've tried that. Didn't work. What do we do as a union? Where are we left as a union? They can't tell us. Just keep telling us to quit. How about you do that next discipline case? Somebody's stealing. 
Tell them don't do it anymore. 25 times later, just off page, just twist them up. Don't do that anymore. Is that going to work? Are they going to go for that? No. And I keep saying this, that the formal step A, who I'm, I'm certain did not read JB's contentions. I'm certain of that. She may have looked at them. She didn't grasp them. And management here in their opening says, as well as advanced to the subsequent steps, failed to even identify the time period the union alleges the violation occurred. There are no specific dates or pay periods, just a windfall allegation to inflate the remedy sought today. There's no specific dates or pay periods. Let's go to page 30. Page 30 of the case file. The grievance case file includes tax employee moves, Report that summarizes the following findings from the tax employer report from date range 2019-1-2 till 2019-18-1. I don't know how JB could have spelled that out any better for them than that. Because to me, that looks like a date range of these clock ranks. That's what that looks like. I'm going to say management, the formal A, had already made up their mind they're not touching this. They're not touching, because you didn't read, if you read it, there it is right there. But what they say in their opening today, it didn't specify that. Well, it did. And here's another thing they failed to grasp in their opening. Handbook in reference to employees being credited with all time designated as work time, there is no evidence in the case file that management failed to compensate any employee for time work. We're not dealing with that. We're not dealing with that. All the carriers are paid. We're dealing with management putting carriers in for work that they were not doing. Standby time, an hour. You saw that and you won. That's what we're talking about. All the meeting time, and I'm gonna get to that in just a second. All the meeting time where they weren't meeting. You know how I know they weren't meeting? Because the man brought the contention up at the formal step A meeting and management throws their hands up. Hey, we have the right to change erroneous clock rings. We're not even dealing with that. We're not even dealing with erroneous clock rings. We're dealing with them putting in our clock rings against our knowledge. And he stated that over and over and over again. You know what management said? Nothing. Then she's, and I don't understand this either. She says, the problem with that argument is that the union ceased to convince you that clock rings from January 2019 could possibly be considered as a non-compliance of a pre-arb that wasn't even signed until June 18, 2019. <clears throat> he showed you that even after June 18th of 2019, and the sad part is, and what's most disturbing about that is, Mr. Conklin testified that on the 19th, he gave district-wide training. That's what he testified to. I got district-wide training, even though that's not in the case file. And the pre-arb says, you're supposed to give that to us if it happens. We didn't get that. He said, the district-wide training. And it continued to go on. He showed you in the case file. It continued to go on for the rest of that month. It's in the case file. Then she says, for it is well known that even in an ongoing violation, the remedy being requested can only be considered for 14 days prior to the filing of this grievance. 
So and what she's saying is we can never file a quarterly overtime grievance. We can't file a quarterly overtime grievance because that consists of three months. We can't file that. We can only go back 14 days. We file it when we find the infraction. If I'm looking at an Article 8 grievance and I say, there's some, there's some time codes aren't right. Give me this period of time. I can incorporate that entire period of time. National Arbitrator Menthol said I could, just like a route inspection grievance. Route inspection grievance, I can file that months down the line. You've already decided that in a route inspection grievance. Then she states this, a formalized settlements, which are not precedent setting, as stated in the JCAM, and then she puts in the very language that I included in you too. Any resolution of agreements, this is formal step AE. Any resolution of agreements in formal step A shall be in writing or shall be noted on the joint step A grievance form, but shall not be present for any purpose unless the parties specifically so agree or develop an agreement to dispose of future similar or related problems. She put that in her open. What did that formal step A say? Cease and desist, which means stop today and don't do it anymore. And then they said future violations, which means what? Past today. So they memorialized that as they can in here. So yeah, it says precedent. Then she states this, many of these settlements have been in other case files that have been adjudicated at arbitration. How many times is management on the hook for these same settlements? How about this? Forever. You are forever on the hook for these decisions. That's why they're there. That's why B team sets precedent for future cases of similar nature, right? As far as I know, and I've read 15 a lot, it does not say that B teams have a statute of limitations. It's not in there. So I will forever use those B team decisions until the end of time. I've got 12 more years. 12 more years, I'll be using those B team decisions because they set precedent for this installation. There's no statute of limitations on that. They can't say it's four years old. It doesn't count. Bull. Article 15 says it does. It says precedent for that installation. Which means what? We're going to use it forever. That's exactly what we're going to do. And this is a, a contention I'm going to raise with management's B team. I'm going to get to that. Management does not dispute that weekly service talks are to be included on line 21 of form 1838C during a route inspection. However, anything over and above the time credit allotted for such during this inspection would not be built into the route, resulting in a clock ring move to training time being appropriate. So instead of coming in here and saying, hey, look, we erred. We shouldn't have done that. We were putting time code in for things that we shouldn't have done. Instead of doing that, they're attempting to justify stealing from us by saying that. They're attempting to justify management at Green Hills stealing from letter carriers when they say that. I'm going to get into that in just a second. Because if anybody in this state knows that that's not true, it's me. And I'll show you why in a second. And again, with this Article 41, the only language in the NALC contract relative to punitive awards is found in Article 41 regarding opting. 
Mr. Arbitrator, what we have today is the union seeking to gain through arbitration what they failed to acquire negotiations. Uh, that has to do with, with remedy. You know that. You've dealt with that before. They're completely confused on Article 41. And she states this, arbitrator to arbitrator, the union has stated they cannot stress enough that there is no request for punitive damages issued here. There is simply a request for incentive for future com for compliance with Article 15.3a and policy violations resulting from management's refusal to comply with prior instructional resolutions. The union concedes, via carefully crafted linguistics, that the remedy it is seeking is punitive in nature intended to punish the Postal Service for what it claims are repeated violations of cease and desist orders. First off, we don't use the word punitive. They do. Uh, we never seek to punish the Postal Service. I work for the Postal Service. Like I said, I got 12 more years here. We want them to stop and don't do it anymore. Whatever that's going to take. That's the reason this gentleman in his remedy, at the very end of it, she went through line by line, says, or whatever, or whatever the B team or you deem appropriate. So whatever you deem appropriate for them to stop, we're good with that, whatever it may be. We're going to be good with that because we, we said that. So whatever you decide, we're fine with it. We want them to stop. It's not punitive. I want you to stop doing what you're doing. We're not trying to punish the very company I work for. i got 12 more years here. I want you to quit doing what you're doing. Whatever I've got to ask for, I don't care if it's a million dollars or a penny. I want you to quit doing what you're doing. second here's another thing there is simply is not the extreme outrageous and wanton and willful misconduct necessary to support an award of punitive damages <clears throat> he said all those things in his contentious management never addressed it so I'm going to say it was outrageous and wanton and willful because he accused them of that at the formal A and they never said no it was not that's what we do we make a contention you contend against it then she says this particular time when the Postal Service faces extraordinary financial pressures. Windfall cash awards the union inflict significant damage to Postal Service operations and undermine the public interest. Two things on that. You're not supposed to take that into consideration. You're not supposed to take as an arbitrator consideration to the financial position of the Postal Service. Every arbitrator knows that. Every advocate should know that. That is to never be brought up because our position is the financial issues with us are caused by Congress. They handle that. You don't and they don't. Those things are not to be brought up. The financial position of the Postal Service. Secondly, quit doing what you're doing. You don't have to worry about the financial position of the Postal Service. Quit doing it. You'll never have to worry about that again. This is, this is an excerpt from your decision I stated in my, in my opening. <clears throat> and this is where JB got the remedy requested. When you say, this is a class action grievance filed on behalf of letter carriers working at a Nashville, Tennessee post office. The rings were altered and the union alleged falsification. The record shows the manager was disciplined and the letter carriers were made whole. The agency is ordered to cease and desist from any similar activities in the future. 
that's where he got the remedy to cover this grievance because you stated the agency. Management says, hey, you only told Woodbine to not steal anymore. You didn't tell Green Hills to not steal anymore. Is that not ridiculous? You didn't tell Green Hills not to steal. You told Woodbine not to steal. We need you to tell Green Hills not to steal. That's their position. You said the agency, so he takes that, the agency as the service, the postal service. That's where he came up with the remedy. Then you stated this, and you quoted uh, arbitrator Peter Clark, where he stated, the union did establish that Ms. Merck's changed hundreds of clock rings to inaccurately reflect what functions the carriers were actually performing at that time. Even though the impacted carriers were not financially affected by Ms. Merck's actions, the integrity of the employer-employee relationship was severely damaged. Bingo. Bingo. That's what's damaged here. Employees are held to various provisions of the National Agreement, including handbooks and manuals, to engage in ethical behavior so as to reflect favorable on its employees. He brought in ELM-665, your behavior, that's what he's talking about. To be trustworthy, that's what we're talking about. I don't trust you anymore because you stole from me 509 hours from my unit. That's what I'm talking about. Trustworthy. I don't trust management. How many times do they tell us in a removal case, we can't trust the carrier anymore because they're out there doing this and that. Why is it any different from them? I can't trust you anymore because you're falsifying and stealing from me. And you state, I cite the above because I find the language of arbitrator Clark applicable to any case of this nature. How about this one? To fraudulently alter any time range is disingenuous. We agree. It's an act, in my view, on the same level as theft. We agree. But paramount is the fact the impact of such actions can be extensive and the effects negatively impact the very integrity of all postal operations. We strongly agree. While the record does not indicate a repetitive history of time record alterations at this location, the seriousness of such an event certainly warrants a cease and desist order. We agree. A single occurrence is far too many. The union definitely agrees. Fraudulent time record alterations for any reason are disingenuous and cannot be tolerated. We agree. I don't believe that the either party to this arbitration endorses, supports, or condones any activity of this sort. I disagree with that in this hearing today because they have tried to excuse it away with safety talks and trucks. They have never come clean that we did this. So I do say that they condone it. The authenticity and accuracy of such time records must never be compromised. And any fraudulent act to that end must be considered heinous and dealt with accordingly. We strongly agree with all of that. Here's your problem. 509 hours of falsified clock rings. 509 hours of falsified clock rings. You didn't hear a single word from a single supervisor or manager here today stating we didn't do it. You didn't see a single statement from any supervisor or management in management's formal A or at this hearing, you didn't see a single statement from anybody saying we didn't do it. This man has made a prima facie case that you stole from us. A prima facie case. He shifted the burden to management and what did management say? Nothing. 
We have the right to change erroneous clock rings. Not one second of the 509 hours was an erroneous clock ring. Not one second of 509 hours was an erroneous clock ring. But that was their position. They want to talk about burden? I don't have to question a carrier. I said you didn't, you shouldn't say you didn't. I don't have to question anybody. I made a prima facie case what you did. You didn't rebut it. Why do I have to question anybody? You made my job a lot easier at the formal step A. You made my job real easy. I come in and say you stole something, what are you gonna say? No, I didn't. No, I didn't steal. This is exactly what happened on that. That 632 time, we had safety talks. There's a safety toolkit that management uses that they put those in. And you can pull those up off the computer and say on this date, I gave this talk, and I gave this talk, and I gave this talk. That's what this time is. Where is that at? It's at the B team as a new argument. That's where that is. It's in management's opening as a new argument. That's where that is. I accused you of something and you never said any different until it's too late. That's convenient, ain't it? The only excuse from management, 484. You don't have to turn it on this. I'm going to flip it quickly. Here's management's position. NELC Branch 4 has failed the burden of proof that Green Hill Station management egregiously altered letter carrier clock rings or altered clock rings at all, aside from making corrections, which are discussed in that one. Making corrections to what? What'd you make corrections to? The carriers made no moves. You made all the moves. So what are you making corrections on? That's their entire position, is that we're making corrections. Mr. Lee testified to what? Not one second of the 509 hours was a correction made was not one. If you look through it, he showed you what we're looking at. When you look through it, you'll not see one carrier make an erroneous clock ring. This is 100% management falsifying those rings. 100%. <clears throat> I want to go just briefly, a little bit of JB's things. He, I, don't, I don't really need to. He did a great job. But I want to talk about management's position and here's the issue that JB had with the formula he talks about 66544 falsification of clock rings he goes to the formula meeting and management says that's not applicable because the ELM is dated what what is what are they talking about the ELM is that's their words now on page 480 the ELM is not relevant because it's dated what so 665, when you use that in a removal case, from now on, JB, use, that's not applicable because it's dated. When they talk about behavior, 665, that's our defense from now on. And put this contention in there at any formal step A meeting because 665 is dated. That's what he's dealing with at the formal step A. Then they talk about, uh, well, he showed you at 354 where he had the whole day of standby time. Management doesn't say anything. They don't say a word. The whole day of an hour of standby time, 
which means there's nothing to do. There's absolutely nothing to do for an entire hour. You know what Matthew says about that? Nothing. Not a thing. All this meeting time. What? I mean, there's, there's no excuse. There's no reasoning. Then we talk about the handbook M39, which is exactly where we get this from, 632 meeting time. Handbook M32, Management Operating Data Systems, MODS. What does management say about MODS? It's obsolete. I'm not making this up. It's in their contentions. It's obsolete. Which means we don't use it anymore. What are they talking about? That's what he's dealing with at the Formal A. Then we talk about a step four, 605. What does manager say about that? Obsolete. <laughs> this is, it, I'm reading their contentions when he's telling me about this stuff, and I, and I don't believe it. It's true, it's in there. In step four, 1664, he raises that contention. And instead of contending against it, what they say? That's not relevant because that's obsolete. That's the DOAS agreement. We use that every day. And we wonder why we're here. We wonder why we're here. It, it's, I couldn't do his job with that formal stuff he read. I would lose my mind. I don't see how he does it. <clears throat> Again, he says, here's his contention, 509 hours that you stole nothing from management. The two pre-arbs incorporated. That's 1,300 about 1,300 hours they stole from us. 1,300 hours that they stole from this city out of three stations. And they want what? A cease and desist? We promise to do better. You stole 1,300 hours from me? What if I was to just clock on and go home and come back at 4 o'clock and clock back in? What if I did that for 1,300 hours? Where would that get me? You think that's going to get me a cease and desist? Hmm? You think that's going to get me a, hey, boy, you know better than that. I clock in and go home, and then I come back at 4 o'clock and clock out and go home, don't do anything for 1,300 hours? You going to tell me a cease and desist is all right? I'm going to say, hey, give me an official discussion on that. Why are we treated different than them? Huh? The letter carrier is the backbone of this company. The city letter carrier is the backbone of this company. Everybody knows that. And you're going to do us like that? You're going to do us like that, tune us up to, up to 1,300 hours? And come in here and say, hey, you're being punitive against me? Really? Then he talks about, you got a lot of step fours, a lot of B-team decisions on uh, non-compliance, Mr. Arbitrator. And you address that in your last decision, and we take that for what it's worth. You address that in your last decision here. So we moved on from that. Uh, 
Article 17 and 31. Here, here's, here's our biggest problem. Besides, I'm stealing. Page 40. Is the, these, these are the tax, this is the EINs that we we're looking for. Um, because it identifies management. He can't go into a station and accuse a manager of stealing if he don't know that they actually stole. Uh, he needs the EIN number. He needs the name that goes with this EIN number so that it can say, this is Supervisor Dave Clark. That's who that belongs to, Supervisor Dave Clark. So now he can go to Supervisor Dave Clark and say, hey, I know what you did. That's your EIN number. I just got that name. So talk to me about this. He was never given that. He asked for it over and over again. It was never given. Why not? Because it identified his told. It takes two seconds to pull that up. And the EIN number management can get on there and pop. There it is. That EIN belongs to station manager Eric Charles. Now I know who did all of it. And so now I can go to him and say, Eric, that's your EIN right here. Were you putting all these people on meeting time? Why'd you do that? I don't know. They're safety talks. That's our burden, contract. That They didn't give that to me, right? You saw the B-team decisions from Green Hills. You, t you addressed that in your last decision, that there was no individual for West, individual decisions for West Station. You address that in, in your decision. I've got it. Okay, well, here we got it. We've got decisions from Green Hills. You saw them. There's no statute of limitations on that. You saw them. That's a violation of 17 and 31. A continued violation of 17 and 31. What we do with that? Nothing. Another, another cease and desist. Is that in order? That, that'll make them stop, right? It's worked in the past. It's helped. They've stopped doing it, right? Yeah. On page 14, and I'm going to get into B team a little bit. Page 14. This is what management states on page 14 this management's position this is the B team this is what she states M document 605 reveals weekly safety talks and other appropriate unit discussions are to be credited on line 21 which means line 21 means that's things that carriers do every day we get credit for that line 22 means we don't get credit for that if I stop on my route during inspection and talk to a customer for 20 minutes, they're going to take that off me because that's not what I do every day. Line 21 means it's something that we do and we get credit for. So 605 talks about we get that credit. However, the Tennessee district, this is what she says. This is, this is, them, this is them trying to justify stealing from us. In an attempt to reduce safety-related accidents, requires management to perform safety talks on an almost daily basis. While the weekly safety talks are included during a route inspection, daily safety talks are talked given more frequently than weekly. Would be in excess of what was credited to the route and should be accounted for via clock rings as time that is not automatically included in the route's base time. So she's justifying stealing. 
if the district sees an improvement relative to employee safety, the daily talks could possibly diminish or could no longer be required. That's our justifying. Of course, it's a new argument now. The union has failed to introduce data from the most recent inspection conduct conducted in the Green Hills office to show any improper or incorrect line items 21 entries. The utilization of Operation 632 and or 782 could logically represent the talks which greatly exceed those accounted for during inspection. She's justifying the statement. She said that Operation 632, which was on the meantime, or 782 could logically represent the talks which greatly exceed those accounted for during inspection. Uh, the Tennessee district predominantly uses a standby when a carrier experiences a vehicle breakdown while out on the route as well as for times when no productive work is being performed. 632 is not for safety talks. It's not for safety talks. I don't care if you get a thousand safety talks. 632 times not do that. That is blatantly false. It's a bold-faced lie and it's a disgusting argument to make that. To justify stealing from us saying, hey, the Tennessee district has come down and we're giving daily stand-up talks. They're justifying stealing from us with that bold-faced lie. I know it's a lie because here's why. I served on the National Safety Committee at the highest level. I was in Washington frequently as a member of the National Safety Committee and since this is a new argument, I'm going to talk to you about it. I served in the area, still do. District, still do. I cover Tennessee for the district for safety. If that happens, if management at the district level decides that's what's going to happen, you know who gets an email? I do. I get an email. Arbitrator Roberts, that is a lie. To justify stealing from us, that's a lie. They should be ashamed of that. And they should admonish that rather than accept it. And it was accepted into her opening statement. That is a lie. In advocate training, I was told to never say that in arbitration. They said, don't ever call anybody a liar or whatever. This is a lie to justify stealing from us. That is not true. The district did not come down and say we're going to give daily stand-up talks. And even if they did, they're not to be covered under 632 time. For them to do that, to justify stealing from us, something she knows nothing about, this BC man would have no idea what, that, that that was happening. She would have no idea that that was going on. To do that, to justify that, is pathetic. That's as pathetic as it gets. Then she talks about on 15, the union insinuates carriers had no idea they were being input into certain operation codes. However, the following employees moved to operation code 743. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about carrier moves that they moved themselves. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about changes to carriers' clock rings that erroneously did that. This grievance is not about that. Understand that. 
This grievance is 100% about management putting in clock rings for carriers that on, on Act 2 they weren't doing. That's what this is about. It has nothing to do with carrier clock rings. It has nothing to do with carriers implementation of their own clock rings. It's management solely putting in our clock rings. Page 16, she talks about CCA training. New argument. It's completely false. That argument is completely false. CCAs do not have 89 hours of training. They don't do it. But you know why they made that argument there? Because he can't prove it. He can't prove it. And Paul Glavin, the union formal, the B team member, he can't request it. That's why he's talking about sandbagging that position. That's it. You didn't see management formal A doing any of that. Sandbagging their position to the B team so they can put things in there that are lies. They should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not. That's a lie. 74 hours of training? No. No. That goes to the unit. Once you come to me, you're on unit. That counts towards the unit. Training time goes when they're in CCA training. She goes on to say, the union's insistence that the above-cited language involves remedies and opting, talking about 41, is not on point. Uh, I don't need to address that with you, Arbitrator Roberts. You know that it is. Here, here's another asinine argument on page 21 by management speaking. It is very difficult burden to evidence intentional and willful clock ring falsification. The limited information discussed at Informal A resulted in the accused local management officials having little to no opportunity to speak on their own behalf. Those management officials should have the right to testify at arbitration as to whether they have been provided adequate training relative to the time and attendance collection system or whether they are following instructions regarding the recording of time for city letter carriers. We filed this grievance at the informal. 24 days from the informal step A meeting to the formal A meeting, they could have provided anything they wanted to. 24 days from the informal step A meeting to the formal step A meeting. Management had plenty of opportunity to talk to supervisors at that local level. At the formal A meeting, they had opportunity to do that. They chose not to. 24 days from the informal step A meeting to the formal step A meeting, management had every opportunity to gather whatever statement from local management they wanted to. And she wants to say that they had little to no opportunity to speak on their own behalf. Really? 24 days you couldn't wrote a statement saying I didn't do it? 24 days? You couldn't have written a statement to Here's what the union is contending. It's completely false. This is what happened. And here's, uh, I've done this, I don't know how many arbitrations I have, I've done. It's over 100. 
this is the most absurd contention I've seen in, in all those hundred cases. On page 20. This is what management's B team member states. Additionally, as stated earlier, if the union was not preparing all cases, all case files for arbitration at the formal A level, any and all time the resources utilized would be greatly diminished. I'll read that again. If the union was not preparing all case files for arbitration, what? That's the reason she's having to make all the arguments for management. Because they're not making their case file ready for arbitration. That's the reason she spends 10 pages of new argument. She just sat there and said that the union is not preparing their case files for arbitration. Is that not the dumbest thing you've ever heard? I read that and I, I had to read that two or three times. So we're not supposed to, to prepare a case for arbitration now? Is that what she's implying? Maybe that's the reason they're in the position they are here today. Because they didn't prepare their case for arbitration. Maybe that's the reason no supervisor or formal step A testified today. I can use my formal A. You know why? Because he prepared his case file for arbitration. That's what he did. You know why there's no supervisor or formal step A testifying for them today? Because they didn't. Then she talks about the awarding of punitive damages, and they keep going on and on about this, and then, and then on page 20, she talks about this. Section 302 establishes general rule that payments to unions by employers are prohibited. The section establishes a number of exceptions, including one that allows for such payments when in satisfaction of a judgment of any court or a decision or award of an arbitrator. They defeated their entire argument putting that in there. Their entire argument was defeated because the formal A, I mean the B team was so excited about putting a new argument in there, which is what she always does. She defeated their own argument. Section 302 establishes a general rule that payments to unions by employers are prohibited. The section establishes a number of exceptions, including one that allows for such payments in satisfaction of a judgment or any court or decision or award of an arbitrator. That's what you are. They defeated their own argument with that, putting that in there. Here's the problem with that. Monica Lucas is the formal, is the B team member, Monica Lucas. On page 284, and I'm gonna fly through these real quick. On page 284 is a B team decision from Monica Lucas, where she awarded what they call a punitive remedy. We call it an incentive for future compliance. Page 284, she awarded that. The very one that's saying now, you can't do it. She awarded it right there. Page 284. Page 291. Now this is their argument that you don't have that right, Arbitrator Roberts. You don't have that right to to, to award any kind of punitive, which is ridiculous to me. Page 291, another one. The grievance file contains formal step by resolution form signed by the parties on February 8th, which reads in relevant part as follows. Additionally, management has issued a cease and desist for failure to comply with the grievance resolution settlements. 
The formal aid parties agreed to a one-time lump sum payment in the amount of $10 to the list of carriers below for management, failing to abide by previous grievance resolutions. What's the argument here today? You can't do that. Three oh two. Three oh two, we've discussed this one before. This is one from 09. Down here, I've discussed it at length with you before. The decision will serve as a cease and desist, failure to abide by grievance settlements. This decision will also serve as notice to management that future violations can result in remedies in addition to those of make whole. I said it before. Above that, in addition to, above that of make whole, above that of status quo ante. Right there, B team. 306. Monica Lucas as the formal step A rep on 306. I also during this meeting agreed to pay the agreement in lump sum of $200 simply for the inconvenience of fair situation. Why is her mind changed now? Formal step A rep, she talks about $200 above the status quo ante. 310. Here's a formal A settlement. Formal A parties agree management of Green Hill Station will be issuing additional cease and desist. Failure to comply with grievance resolution settlements. Additionally, as a deterrent <coughs> against future violations for failure to comply and to ensure compliance with grievance resolution settlements, management will award Kathleen Johnson a one-time lump sum $50 minus standard deductions. And what are they saying here today? It's punitive. Well, both of them signed it. Formal A as an incentive, as a deterrent against future violations. That's how the Green Hills. What's their argument? You can't do it. They're doing it. 331. Three thirty one, here's another formal step A settlement. As a deterrent against future violations for failure to comply, the parties agree the following letter carries at the East States in a one time lump sum in amount of one hundred minus standard deductions. All those carriers. They're doing it. Right? But you can't do it. Is that what they're saying? They can do it. You can. 339. Another. Future similar violations of failure to comply with grievance resolution will result in escalated remedies to ensure contract compliance. 339. How about this? 342 the same. 345 the same. 349 the same. 351. 417. 418. 423. 427. 437, 438, 439, 442. All of them talking about the same thing. But you can't do it. We can't. But you can't. It's not proper. Well, why do all them do it? It's not proper. Maybe it's just again, they want you to get involved with this. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they should have not done it. Maybe they shouldn't have stole from us. That would have been real nice. We wouldn't be here. But they chose to do that. On page 12, you know, Arbitrator Roberts says it's the union's B-team decision. And it just talks about uh, Paul Glavin, our guy, put in there, arbitrators talking about the arbitrator's authority. 
when it comes to fashioning a remedy. You have the right to do whatever you want to do. Managers will, will cry and complain about punitive remedy, whatever. You have the authority to do whatever you want to do. You know that. They can't tell you anything other than that. They can beg and plead not to do that. You have the right to do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to go over management speed team decision. It's I've addressed it enough. It's completely crazy. When you go to the remedy, they wouldn't agree to a cease and desist with us. That that's the reason. You know, we're having to forward this thing to to arbitrations. We asked that you stop doing it, and they won't even do it. He says. Management does not agree with any form of a cease and desist, especially for falsifying clock breaks. That's what he's dealing with. Why well, can't he get that? I can't even get that. I've got some sites. This is uh, this is from arbitrator Wallace. Here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. She states this on page 29 and 30. And, and you've dealt with Lake Charles before. It reasons that non ODL carries, this is talking about ODL continued violation of Article 8. But what she talks about is what Mr. Leith is talking about in his remedy. It reasons that the non-ODO carriers have been forced to work are getting paid for the work at the overtime rate and hence are not harmed. However, what is the fail what it fails to consider is that all the carriers are harmed by management's failure to honor its contractual obligation. That's what we're doing here. Even if they are paid for the overtime they are not assigned to work but should have been the ODA carriers are additionally harmed by management failure to honor its contractual responsibilities, which erodes the trust of the carriers in their management. Exactly what we're talking about here. The non-ODO carriers who are forced to work unwanted and unanticipated overtime are harmed by losing the use of that time however they plan to use it, despite the fact that they are paid for their overtime. All the carriers in the bargaining unit, even those not directly impacted on a particular day, are harmed by the erosion of the contractual rights. The collective bargaining relationship is harmed. The union is harmed by having to bear the expense of processing grievances and potential arbitration cases over and over again on the same issue. This harm is clear and evident. It is particularly evident in repeated violations over a long period of time over the same issue and repeated failure to abide by settlement awards. We couldn't have said that any better. She asked JB, were you not paid for doing that? Were you not paid for doing that work? Yeah, he's paid for doing the work, but that gum. Have them do the same thing over and over again, our resources over and over again. Yeah. That erodes the trust of us. She spelled it out perfectly right there. Here's your decision. I didn't highlight any of it, Arbitrator Roberts, but here, here's the problem that the union has with management. And this is the case that you just recently issued out of Nashville, where management... The pre-arb settlement stated that national management and national installation will proceed training. And management came in here and stated that doesn't mean Nashville. It means the station from which it arose. So Nashville is not covered. We said that all of Nashville should be covered. 
and you agreed with management. We had no problem with that. We had no problem with that decision. Today, what do they say? The exact opposite. No, national means all of national. Well, make up your mind which one it is. Because in that one, you said all of national, no, it just means that one station. Here today, all of national, what do we mean all of national now? Well, we're put at a disadvantage because what does it mean? When you say all of Nashville, they imply all of Nashville means a singular station. That's what they stated. Here today, all of Nashville means all of Nashville. <laughs> we just want to know what it means. Does all of Nashville mean all of Nashville or station for Sid Rose? Again, we had no problem with your decision. We'll put that up and we'll use it at West Station. That's what we'll do. We don't get bitter. But we just need to know from them what does it mean? Because they're contradicting themselves in arbitration. The pre-arb doesn't cover Green Hills. It doesn't cover Article 17 and 31. And we have a, a clear violation of that. It doesn't cover that. They can lie all they want to. And they can try to cover this up, which is what they try to do. They try to lie to cover this up. We will never stop coming after management for doing what they're doing here. We will never stop coming after management for stealing from our brothers and sisters. And it makes me irate when they do this. I've got my brothers and sisters in a station, working their asses off, doing their job, and I got a lazy ass manager sitting behind a desk trying to make their numbers look better at the expense of my brothers and sisters. That ticks me off. We deserve better than that. We deserve better than that. And we deserve better than them coming in here trying to justify it away as you weren't harmed. We ask that you sustain this grievance in its entirety and grant the union its requested remedy. And again, that remedy can be found on pages, I think, 47 and 48. That was in my that was in my opening. Let me make sure of that. In your opening? Yeah. Right. Pages 47 and 48. Thank you, sir. All right, so there you have it, the closing argument. And so if you are still awake, but hopefully enjoyed that, uh, gets you back inside of an arbitration room and shows just how I attacked every single thing, as long as it took, because the arbitrator is going to take that case by home uh, and he's going to look at every single thing. And so when he's starting to look at it, I want him to remember the union talked about that. The union talked about this. The union addressed that. And so um, we had a very good decision based off of that uh, that case. And uh, JB gets all the credit. He's fantastic, puts fantastic contentions together, very easy, a fantastic witness, uh, does a very good job for us. Uh, so I hope that y'all enjoyed that. Uh, a lot of reading and about 45 minutes of me talking so, in a closing argument. Uh, next week, we're going to get into our very first uh, grievance of the month. And it'll be something most of y'all have never heard of, okay? I promise you, something that most of y'all have never heard of. But if we file it right, it'll produce some fruits. 
you know, produce some fruits, a very odd grievance of the month next week. Okay. And, um, so I hope you'll have a fantastic week. Uh, enjoy yourselves. I will see y'all next Sunday and hopefully we'll have a little bit more stuff to talk about, but this one has already taken a long time, so I'm not going to elaborate on anything else, but, uh, hang in there, shop stewards, hang in there. I know a lot of y'all are disgruntled and a lot of y'all are dismayed and you message me a lot. Uh, look, I love each and every one of you and, and I hope that you hang in there. I understand it's difficult. It's difficult when you're fighting management nonstop and then your union doesn't help you and they don't support you. It's very difficult. And I understand that. Okay. Uh, hang in there, hang in there. Uh, it, it will get better. I promise you. it will get better. Uh, we're going to make sure of it. Okay. I'll make sure of it. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to make sure that every shop steward in this country is uh, provided with the help that you need and the backing that you need and get rid of those that don't back you. Okay. So hang in there. All right. All right. I love each and every one of you and I hope you all have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you next Sunday. All right.